Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. They said, you should go to a treatment facility. He's like, why would I go to a treatment facility? I am sober and I don't want to use. And he was not lying. He was like, I'm sober and I don't want to use. And he's not an hour out the door, right? Maybe two. And he's high again. And he was perplexed. He's like, what happened? That's our thinking. But when he's telling the people at the treatment facility that they're crazy, he's not lying. Right. You could have strapped him up to all the, you know, all the monitors you wanted and you'd get a truthful response. I'm not going to use. So that storytelling process is distorted in in people who suffer from addiction. And that's why they can't get out of it. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives and what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you you What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. 
what happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends, and welcome back. I had the privilege and honor a while ago to sit down with the remarkable Dr. Constance Scharf, whose early life was deeply damaged by her father's abuse and which led her to taking her first drink at age 11. By the time she reached college, Constance was drinking two litres of hard liquor a day. In this quick chat episode, Dr. Scharf describes how she found herself on a path of self-destruction fueled daily by the trauma of those early years. But Dr. Constance Scharf has not only survived, she has emerged as a true beacon of hope. Today, she shares with us some simple yet powerful practices that have been integral to her addiction recovery journey. These practices not only saved her own life, but also inspired her work as the founder of the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research. We pick this story up as Constance is sharing some of the key practices we can use to overcome trauma and addiction. I think the first thing is, especially when you're dealing with addiction, is that the key to recovery or a key to recovery is don't do what you think it should be. So if you go to 12-step rooms, they're going to tell you to do certain things. If you go to a religious-based program, they're going to tell you to do certain things. If you go to rehab, you know, they're going to tell you to do certain things. And I think one of the disservices that we've gotten from rehab is that many rehabs say, just take what you want, cafeteria style. And I think that's a mistake because then what happens is we have selective hearing and we move back into, we use, pick and choose the things and we say, oh, it doesn't work. Well, because you didn't do it the way they told you to do it, right? If you, right, if, if, if I would say to bake a cake, you know, and I say, okay, so first you take the, the ingredients and you mix them together and then you put them in the oven, right? If you just take all the ingredients and put them in the oven, you're not going to get a very good cake, right? You can't, there's times you can't skip certain pieces of the instructions and expect to get the results that you want. It's like if you've ever seen recipes for cookies, they're like, okay, this is if you use white sugar. This is if you use brown sugar. This is if you use all-purpose flour or more flour or less flour. You put molasses instead of sugar, like, and all the cookies, they're all chocolate chip cookies, right? But they're all a little different. And some of them aren't as delicious as others, right? And so I think what we have to do, in, and, and I do like this term in uh, 12 steps, is this idea of surrender. You see it a lot in Buddhism as well, right? You know, you, things are the way they are, you know? You like the president, you don't like the president. You like the cor- the king's coronation, you don't like it. The- it doesn't matter. The president is who the president is, and the king had the coronation that he had. It doesn't matter what I think or feel about it, right? Mm. And so there, if I can accept 
that my thought process is flawed and just do whatever because I'm picking what I who I like anyway, right? Do I want a medical, you know, program? Do I want a spiritual program? Do I want to, you know, whatever? Doesn't that is irrelevant. But just do what someone else tells you in its entirety. So what really made the difference for me is I didn't tell my mentor no. I can count on one finger once. I worked with her for 12 years, the first 12 years of my recovery. I can of, of this sobriety. I can I can tell you one time she said, I want you to pray on your knees. And I said, I'm Jewish and Jews just don't do that. I didn't say I wouldn't pray. I said, I'm really uncomfortable because that's what our literature said to do. That you should pray on your knees. And I said, I'll pray standing up, sitting down in some weird yoga position, totally prostrate. I don't care, but mm, knees doesn't feel good. And so she said to me, she said, go to the other Jewish people in our group and find out what they do. And so that's what I did. And half of them said, no, I pray the Jewish way, mostly standing. And, and I had one, one very dear man of blessed memory now, but he said to me, he said, oh no, sweetheart, when God sees a Jews on their knees, you on their knees he he knows it's they're really in trouble right and that worked for him that is the one thing that i that i ever now i would talk back and i'd be sassy and be like that's a ridiculous idea and then go do it you know like a petulant child i certainly you know behaved badly but i did what she said and that built trust right because Mm -hmm. when i did what she suggested came out of this story of i know best yeah then my life got better. And I was like, and my sobriety got easier and all those things. And I was like, all right, there's something to this. You know, I've worked with a woman who I just adored, you know, and she called me up one day and she said, I really, she'd been sober for five years. And I, she said, I really think I'm going to drink today. And she didn't live near me anymore. She had moved to San Francisco. And I said, get up right now and go to a 12 step meeting. I said, because if you're with other sober people, you're not going to pick up and this feeling is going to pass. And she listened to herself, not because I thought there's anything magical. It's just if you're, if you're with a bunch of people who aren't drinking, you're not going to order a drink. It's just, you know, this is how it works. And she decided that she was going to stay home and watch movies with her dog. And she, you know, ordered a handle of vodka and she's dead now. One year later, she's dead, you know, because she kept picking and choosing what she wanted to do. And that's the danger of the, of the narrative of the story in the alcoholic mind, because we think we're doing what's best, but what we're, but our thinking is distorted, you know? And so that's why at least, you know, I'm, I'm sober 25 years. Like my thought process is like, the average person, right? I make good decisions. I make bad decisions, but I don't make decisions that take me back to drinking anymore, Mm. you know, because my thought process has changed. But initially, if I was left to my own devices, the answer was use because I knew it worked and I Mm. didn't see the insidiousness. You know, I I knew a guy who, terrible, terrible heroin addiction. He's sober, probably like close to 10 years now maybe 10 years, but terrible heroin addiction. And he would say, he went to detox and they said to him at the end of his seven days in detox, they said, you should go to a treatment facility. And he's like, 
why would I go to a treatment facility? I am sober and I don't want to use. And he was not lying. He was like, I'm sober and I don't want to use. And he's not an hour out the door, right? Maybe two. And he's high again. And he was perplexed. He's like, what happened? That's our thinking. But when he's telling the people at the treatment facility that they're crazy, he's not lying. Right. You could have strapped him up to all the, you know, all the monitors you wanted and you'd get a truthful response. I'm not going to use. So that storytelling process is distorted in in people who suffer from addiction. And that's why they can't get out of it very or one of the reasons, many reasons why they can't get out of it with ease. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? To realize the power of our brains and our thinking and we're we're just not aware of of how destructive that is in inside of our own heads. No. You know, that's that's incredible. Well, also there especially, you know, with some alcoholics, we're still okay in other areas of our life. Mm. Right? So I walked across, you know, the stage and you know and and I got all the honors and all the things and and a faculty scholar and I mean all all the all, all the designations and people were like, "Well, how did you do that if you're, you know, a drunk?" And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I'm smart, you know, I, I don't know. I pick classes that I'm good at. I, I liked school. Like, I don't have an answer. But if you're, if you have not gotten, this is one of the fallacies of our thinking. If you've not gotten to the level of homelessness, lost the family, you know, lost the job, lost all the things, then you can still tell the story. Well, it's not that big of a problem. Mm. right so like this woman you know when she when she relapsed she got very sick she'd already had some medical problems and she said I think I need to go to the hospital and I said well you need to go to rehab and and over the next six or eight weeks she just couldn't just couldn't stay sober and very very difficult medical problems and I and she said to me I said you got to go to rehab and when we need a a med like a facility that has medical doctors on staff I was like you are physically sick like there's some physical problems here that we need to deal with and she said well I'll lose my job Mm. and I was like oh baby your job's gone they haven't fired you yet right but she's still telling herself oh no I can you know I can maneuver my way through I'm like no no you're gonna go on disability and you're gonna stay on disability as long as you possibly can to get the most treatment that you possibly can and then as soon as you go back they're gonna lay you off because that's what happens that's not, you know, it's not legal. It's not right. You can have whatever, you know. And she was like, no, I can't. But what actually happened, right, was she left treatment sooner than she should have. She stayed for, you know, a while, but she left treatment sooner than she should have. And as soon as she got back, they her position is no longer needed, right? I was like, that job's already gone, right? But we can't see that because our story is, you know, it's like when people are like, oh, nobody knows how much I drink. And then, you know, right. And everybody's like, oh my God, we totally all know that you drink a lot. And, you know, you have all these problems or, you know, a, a dear friend of mine, you know, he was in a, a major band and, and he talks about how his, his, the he was a guitar player and the lead singer of the band. I write about this in, in one of my books and the lead singer of the band came over to his house and threw a CD this is a long time ago, threw a CD at him and said, this is a recording of the show that we just did. 
and my friend's like, oh yeah, here we go, right? In his mind, here we go. He's going to tell me what a, you know, POS I am. And he's going to tell me how bad I am. I'm not a good guitar player. And he did say, you know, he's like, I don't know what you were playing, but it wasn't the same songs we were playing. Uh, you're just off in your own little world. But that's where he left it. And he said, it is not fair. They've been friends since kindergarten. It is not fair for you to make me watch my best friend die. This is a guy, they had to pull the van over on the side of the road because he's having a seizure and spitting up blood. And he came to with, you know, the state, you know, police saying, do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? Right. Because he couldn't, he couldn't drink enough to get him from point A to point B because the van didn't, you know, wasn't a bus, didn't have a toilet on it. They couldn't pull over all the time to pee. So he didn't drink and he had a seizure from from alcohol detox and he doesn't think he doesn't think the problem's that bad right mm. and his friends like it's not fair for me to have to watch you die mm. and walked out he never listened to that cd but he went to rehab the next call he made was to his mother who worked in 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 medical in the medical field and said how do i how do i get to rehab like what's the what's the process for that so it's that you know, because he messed up the story. See, if if the singer, if the friend had said, you know, you're messing up the band, he'd be like, I ain't messing up the band. You just don't know how to sing or whatever the story was. Right. He didn't play into the story that the that the man expected. He he played. He was like, I don't want to watch my best friend die. I'm not going to do it. Mm. Eye opening story. Absolutely. When Marcel when Marcel said there's recovery, it scared me to death. Right. I want to jump out the car. But. Also, I was like, oh, wait a minute. That might be true. Yeah. Yeah. Might be true. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com/acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Oof, wow. Do you have any simple practices that people can incorporate into their day to help if they're trying to heal their trauma? Yeah, so I so I, wrote, I, I started the Institute for Complementary and Indigenous Mental Health Research for two reasons. Number one, to give not an Indigenous person, but I believe that 
everyone should have a seat at the table. And you certainly do with me, but also because I traveled the world and I've seen how Western mental health, we call them colonized practices, really harm, not only don't help, but harm other communities. I work in the area of complementary. And so people talk about prayer and meditation and yoga are, are all pretty common. Some things that are maybe less common. Acupuncture is one of my favorites. It is sometimes covered by insurance. I like it because it's passive. I show up, lie on the table, and they stick a few needles in me, and I feel better, a lot better. And it really, really helped me in my early recovery to just calm me down. You know, so anxious. Things that work with your hands. So my anxiety was so bad. I do all the, by the way, I try all this stuff out on myself, right? And it doesn't mean not everything works for me, but I really am focused on things that activities that have few or no side effects, right? So for example, if you write a song, what you're not very good at the guitar, like there's no, you don't finish it. It's, you know, there's some sort of judgment, like self-judgment. No, there's no real side effect to the process, but there are really some good benefits. So that's, so I try all this stuff on myself. So if you have anxiety, which so many people do in early recovery, something with your hands, knitting, crocheting, needlepoint. I used to do for the first 10 years of my recovery, I would go to these meetings and I would do fancy stitch needlepoint because I couldn't sit in my seat without losing my mind, without something for my hands to do. And I went to this really big meeting on Fridays. And I remember one day I had forgotten my needlepoint. I didn't put it in the car because I would go to work and then I would come to directly the thing. I didn't have it in my car. And I shared that sober like 10 years, you know, I shared, oh my gosh, I forgot my needlepoint and I'm okay. The cheers. You would have thought I said I, I had a week sober. I mean, the cheering that I was okay, but that repetitive, you know, really, really helped me initially. And I know it helps a lot of, you'll see a lot of people who knit or, or crochet or whatever. And it's, you know, not a bad activity to do. I think music, playing music or singing. And I want to be real careful that your brain does not know if you are good or bad at it. So think about if you see a child, you know, in the cereal aisle at the grocery store who's listening to the 80s music that's usually, you know, going on, right? And they're dancing and doing their thing. They don't care. And nobody goes, ew, they're not a very good dancer. I don't know why they're not, you know, why they're dancing in because the, they're three. Nobody cares, right? Your brain does not know if you're good or bad. It cares that you do it. So if you have your own carpool karaoke, right, and you are having a bad day and you're driving home, you got some, you know, music on the radio that you really like, and you belt it out, it's actually a neurological response. It's a neurochemical response. So your brain produces serotonin, oxytocin, and dopamine. So if you're having a, if you're, you and I, right, I'm just going to assume that our brain chemistry is fairly normative, right, at this point. So if you and I are having a bad day and we're starting out here and we sing, we'll end up like this. 
right? You'll feel better. I do this all the time at academic conferences. I have people, we all sing row, row, row your boat. Most people who speak English could know row, row. I don't know why that's a cross-cultural song, but it seems to be. So, you know, we'll sing row, row, row your boat. I'm a Girl Scout. And so we'll do it in an eight-part round, right? I mean, I got the whole place going and they're all laughing. It's not because it's silly. It's because your brain produces these feel-good chemicals, right? Now, if you're, you know, in early recovery from addiction, and your brain is not producing these chemicals in anything like normal amounts, mostly because you have been, you know, self-medicating, right? It doesn't matter if you drink it or shoot it or snort it or smoke it or whatever, your body's waiting for you to put the chemicals in instead of producing themselves. So if you start singing and you're at the basement of not producing very much, and now your body produce it, you come up to here and you are high, And I can do a whole bunch of that because that's a motivation, right? They're like, hey, I came in here suicidal thinking I was going to die because I'm a worthless junkie is what they'll tell me, right? And they come out and they're like, also singing allows you to bypass things you can't necessarily say. So if we do a songwriting exercise, we can dig into issues and concerns, problems that we can then take out to the rest of the therapeutic team, you know? And so there are many, many ways. So I would say, so singing is really good. And again, it does not matter. You know, I have a very, I have an average voice. I I do fine in a choir. I can, you know, sing a a song that's not too difficult. You know, I'm not, you know, Aretha Franklin or Whitney Houston, or I, you know, I don't have a magical voice. Who cares? Who cares? You know? I, I realized once I, I knew a woman who really did sound when she sang, she really did sound like a dying goat. And she, she, she sang in the synagogue all the time. And I was so judgmental and mean until I learned about this. This was, you know, before I was doing this research or, or at the start of when I was doing this research. And when I learned this, I thought, you to myself, you shut your mouth because look at the joy sure. she has, you know. Yeah. And then the other thing is there's really something to be said for self-affirmations, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me from Saturday Night Live. If you tell yourself, if your self-talk is really negative, you're going to feel bad. I was telling a friend of mine once, I was telling him, I was like, wow, you know, all the bad things that I was saying about myself to myself. and he looked at me and really strongly said, don't talk about my friend like that. And I was like, oh my gosh. But if you think about it, I mean, I love that. But if you think about it, I would never say about or to someone the kind of horrible things I say to and about myself. Mm -hmm. Even someone I really didn't like, I would never use that kind of, well, if that's all you repeat back to yourself all day long, Right. You're going to, you're going to have, you know, a negative inner. So, you know, while it's silly, I halt that, that negative self-talk now. Right. And uh, I applied, it's funny, I applied for a, a, a research grant and I didn't get the, I didn't get it in the first round. And I talked to a friend of mine, a colleague who had gotten this grant twice. And I said, what do you think I did wrong? And we talked about it and he said, well, rewrite the, I wasn't going to reapply. He said, rewrite the essay and reapply. And 
I rewrote the essay and I sent it off to him. And he was like, wow, I don't know if I'll get the grant or not. But he was like, what happened? And I said, oh, I wrote about myself like a, I was an unqualified white man applying for a job that, you know, I don't have any of the qualifications for. And he was like, but that's something to learn, right? That's not something we're sought to be self-deprecating and demure. And I left Mm -hmm. a job because they're like, you're not really like sweet and nice and demure. And I was like, oh, you picked the wrong person because then that wouldn't be me, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm like, no, I have to be, you know, and and I was like, the, the guy literally said to me, he was like, he was like, well, I want you to be more like my mom. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a no. Like he didn't get, he didn't get that that was, you know, inappropriate. Right. But, <laughs> and his mom is lovely. I, I really, his mom is genuinely like a lovely person, you know? And I was like, yeah, that's, you know, we have to be assertive. And, and if you, and if you, whoever you is, are, who's judging me want to label that as aggressive. Okay. Right. You wouldn't, if I was a man, I, in fact, this, this, this employer, he, he had said to me, he was like, well, I, I said, this behavior, you would not you would not denigrate in a man. You would not reprimand in a man. He was like, yeah, but you're, you're a woman. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Right. So, so it's not, I share that because it's just not something that is, you know, taught to us. We have mm-hmm. to learn this. And it's like, no, like I'm actually really a badass. Yeah. You know, I really am. People like me, you, when we started with my childhood, people like me die. Hmm. We are overdoses. We are suicides. You know, we end up being a large number of women with, you know, be, end up being sex trafficked, you know, abused. Like, for I really understand that for me to be sober 25 years, to be 50 years old, this is gravy. And so that's what I just want to give back, right? Mm-hmm. What can I do? Like, I learn these things to make my life better. Right. But I can share them because there's a ton of people who suffer from the same things that I do. And I want you to know whoever you are, I want you to know that there's hope. And if someone who comes from what I come from can recover from addiction, recover from trauma, have a very vibrant research agenda, travel the world teaching, working with amazing people learning from all sorts of different people and trying to help ease suffering in whatever way that I can coming from where I started you can too thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at My Big Love Project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 